0: Uh, good evening ladies and gentlemen. With your permission we shall start in time and not wait for the late comments. Um, my name is Akrasam Alani. Uh, I'm not going to uh, read you a full list of the other events. There are two sheets in the back. Uh, they have uh, our set of events for this quarter. They're now divided into two different sheets. One are lectures uh, and play readings, and the other ones are (coughs) simply plays or films or workshops and theater. They're uh, under the rubric of something that we are just launching called the Stanford Festival of Iranian Arts, and we'll be having a whole array of events, including, as I said, plays, uh, one uh, this Friday in English, uh, one this Saturday in French, in uh, 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 Persian, French to some of you, uh, uh, and Greek to others. Uh, uh, the, the play uh, on um, Friday, uh, we have uh, uh, staged this play here as a play reading, uh, uh, and it is a remarkable play. Uh, this time is going to be in English. And it is uh, being performed by two of uh, Iran's most prominent actors coming from Iran. Uh, uh, Mr. Hashemi, Afshina Hashemi, is really one of the most accomplished actors of his generation. He works in Iran and sometimes here, and he's coming here to do two performances, one in English on Friday one in uh, French on Saturday. Uh, The rest of them are listed here and uh, the rest of our uh, events are also listed in this program. Uh, uh, For uh, me to introduce uh, uh, Dick Davis is a very difficult thing uh, because there's so much to be said about him and whatever I say will sound hyperbolic. uh, it's very easy to be hyperbolic about Dick Davis. Uh, first of all, in a way, uh, his coming here is uh, his return to us. Dick Davis was the first Bita Yobari visiting professor of Persian letters. When we launched the Bita Yobari endowment, the first person we thought should come, the first person that we thought would give the program the kind of heft it needed it was Dick Davis, who kindly accepted our invitation, came and taught a course for us, and we are forever grateful. But um, Nick Davis is a poet, a scholar, a gentleman, uh, and a man who loves his craft and his art, and who is truly uh, tireless in uh, promoting the best of Persian letters, and English letters, I might say. He is an accomplished poet, he is a prize-winning poet in English. Uh, I don't think he has yet won any prizes in Persian poetry. <coughs> uh, but his translations of Persian poetry, poetry, uh, poetic masterpieces, from Shahnameh to Viserahmeen to now Hafez to Attar, I think are, in my humble opinion, the best translations of any of these works that we have in English. You know, when we think about what someone like Nicholson might have been like when he translated Rumi. I often think, what was a person like Nicholson like? Well, we have someone better than Nicholson here tonight, someone who has done more than Nicholson. I know this is a very large claim to make, but he has done more than Nicholson to produce some of the best translations of some of the best works of Persian poetry, which are, in my view, some of the best works of literature the world has known. We are fortunate to have a man, like Dick Davis, interested in and immersed in Persian letters. Uh, we should give him an honorary Persian citizenship. <laughs> and if you accept by acclamation, we declare him from now on, <laughs>
1: well I don't know how to respond to that (laughs) really I'm going to be Akbar from now on that's very nice well um, uh, that relaxed me somewhat I always get very nervous at the beginning of a talk one reason um, for giving a talk to an audience like this uh, is that I've realised that there is always an enormous variation in the amount of knowledge between different people in the audience about the subject I'm talking about. Uh, there are, and tonight I'm talking about Hafez, which is like talking about Shakespeare to an English audience. I see that most people here are Iranian, at least in origin. Um, uh, uh, as I say, it's like talking about Shakespeare to, to, to an English audience, and, and imagine one is an Iranian talking about Shakespeare to an English audience. The English audience is going to think, we know much more about Shakespeare than he does. (coughs) So I I have a feeling there might be an equivalent situation here. Um, As I say, a lot of people here will know an, an enormous amount about Hafez. Some people here will know very little about Hafez, and there might even be one or two people who know virtually nothing about Hafez. So just in order to sort of keep everybody together, as it were, and to make sure that we're all on the same page as we go forward, I'm going to say some things at the beginning which might seem very obvious to many of you, but I hope that I get into more meaty stuff quite quickly and I hope um, there will be something there for everybody, I hope so, even those who know a great deal about the poet. Now in the past uh, five or six years um, I've spent quite a lot of time trying to do verse translations of Hafez. I, um, I wrote an essay about 10 years ago called On Not Translating Hafez, which in fact achieved some notoriety. I think it's the most best known essay I've ever written because I got an awful lot of feedback about it. <coughs> and I set out in that essay the reasons that I thought Hafez was virtually impossible to translate. And of course, having written the essay, I immediately started to try to translate him. Uh, with not much success at first it's very very tough it's extraordinarily difficult to translate as anybody who knows how work will be aware um it's full of illusions it's full of ambiguities uh it's full of sudden changes of direction it's full of shifts of register uh, of tone uh, as as the poem goes forward it's extre- Hafez. Is, a friend of mine has, has put it. He said Hafez remains always just out of reach, which I think is a very good way of describing one's encounter with Hafez, particularly if you spend a long time in his company, as, as I've been doing in the past five or six, seven years. And in fact, I've been fascinated with Hafez since I first got involved with Persian, which is over thirty years ago, but uh, only with some intensity in the last five, six years. He always remains just out of reach, and it's very difficult to translate somebody who's just out of reach. It's very difficult to bring it across. Gradually, though, I felt that the translations were getting somewhat better. Any translation of Hafez is going to be a failure because there is so much in Hafez uh, that's going on simultaneously in many poems, and you can only bring across something. You can't bring across everything. So <clears throat> it's just as as Beckett says: you do your failure, and then you try and fail better. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. Eventually I, I put together between 70 and 80 translations of ghazals by Hafez and a few Rubaiyat um, as well. Um, uh, that's not very much of his work. Uh, he, um, in the Khan Lari edition of his poems, which is the usually accepted standard edition nowadays, there are 486 ghazals. so it's about a seventh or an eighth of his, of his total output. I have translated many of the most famous poems, but some of the most famous poems really resisted translation and uh, rather than put an awful translation out, I gave up on them I've also translated many poems that are much less well known Now, in translating Hafez, or in trying to translate Hafez I, I do emphasize trying to translate Hafez In trying to translate Hafez, I found myself reading everything I could about him that I thought might be useful. There's an awful lot written about Hafez and a lot of it, to be honest, is not of much use. But there is an awful lot written about Hafez that is of a a great deal of use. And I found myself reading as much of it as I could in Persian and in English and also in the other languages which I can sort of stumble through with a dictionary which is mainly French and Italian and German with a lot of swearing. (coughs) So I read as much as I could about him and I quickly realised... Something which actually should be obvious, but I think is forgotten about many poets and paradoxically the more famous a poet is, the more this tends to be forgotten which is a poet does not exist in a cultural or poetic or historical vacuum He comes out of a particular place, he comes out of a particular time he comes out of a particular poetic moment in which people wrote poems in particular ways And the more one knows about this place and time and cultural poetic milieu that the poet comes out of, the better one understands his poems, the more clearly one sees what what he is doing. As I was translating Hafez, I got very interested in another poet who is a contemporary of Hafez and who almost certainly knew him. I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, You might think that's very unlikely that they knew one another, but as I say, I'll talk about that in a minute, who is the princess Jahan Khatun, who was the niece of Hafez's main patron, who was the king Abu Haq, who was the king a king from the Inju dynasty. I'm going to talk about the Inju dynasty in a moment. I started to read Jahan Khatun's poems, too, and I almost got sidetracked from Hafez because I got besotted with Jahan Khatun. I got really, really very caught up. She's not a a great poet in the way that Hafez is, but she's an extraordinarily interesting poet. Uh, And I'm going to talk about her, I hope, uh, at length later on, or at some length. Um, I also, just to sort of round it out, as it were, I read another contemporary of Hafez. Jahan Khatun and Hafez are, uh, 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 of course, contemporaries. Hafez was probably born in 1315. Jahan Khatun, we don't know exactly when she was born, but her parents married in 1324. So probably 1325 is the earliest she could have been reasonably born, uh, assuming she wasn't born out of wedlock, which she certainly wasn't, or we would know about it. So 1325 or 1330, something like that. She marries in the mid 1340s, but she was probably a teenager when she married. So Hafez and she were contemporaries. Another contemporary of theirs was Obeid al who was born in 1300, uh, and who was also in Shiraz at the same time. And Hafez and Obed certainly knew each other. Um, and they have quite a lot in common. Um, although one might not think so superficially, but they do. Um, and I realized that by reading Obed and Jahan Khatun, I was giving Hafez a poetic context. That is, I was seeing the kind of poetry that other people living in the same society at the same time, in the same place, were writing. And this throws into relief Hafez's own poetry. Uh, it makes you realize that there are things in Hafez that, which you might think are specific to Hafez, but then you realize, no, everybody who was writing at that time was saying this kind of thing. It's not specifically Hafez. It's in Jahan Khatun. It's in Obeid. It's in Haju, who is a slightly older poet, also their contemporary, too, born towards the end of the 13th century, living into the... He lived, till I think, 1353. So um, he, he dies sort of in the middle of Hafez's life. Hafez died in 1389, Um, So uh, there's a lot of khadju in Hafez or there's a lot of echoes of khadju uh, in Hafez's poetry So you have khadju, you have Jahan Khatun, you have Obeid Where you find common motifs in all these poets you can see that that's not a specifically Hafezian thing It's something that that was sort of around at the time. And then you can find the opposite, too. You can think, a moment in Hafez, you can think, well, this just belongs to the time. But then you find that no other poet says that kind of thing. And then you have found something that is specific to Hafez, or that seems to be specific to Hafez. So reading the other poets of his period was a great help to me in trying to get hold of what... Hafez is very hard to get hold of, in trying to get hold of what Hafez what is really like, what he's doing, what he's saying, that kind of thing. Now, I'm going to... And the analogy of Shakespeare kept coming to me. Um, Shakespeare, of course, he's an utterly different kind of poet from Hafez, but he's similar in his reception, in that he is seen as the great poet of the language, as it were, and he is seen as a poet who everybody knows a bit about, Uh, And I mean any Englishman or Englishwoman who is remotely English, interested in literature even very, very remotely can probably quote you a line or two of Shakespeare even if it's only to be or not to be or but soft what light through yonder window breaks in the same way that every Iranian can quote you poems by Hafez or a bait or two by Hafez even if they're not particularly interested in literature Now when people watch Shakespeare plays in England now if they don't have any background in Elizabethan English they miss an awful lot And also, they tend to watch the plays as if they are modern plays, which is a natural thing to do, of course. Not everybody can can know everything about Tudor England, which goes into Shakespeare's plays. But just to give a a very small example, I'm not going to spend a long time on this, because it's Hofles we're talking about, not Shakespeare. But to make an analogy, in The Merchant of Venice, The Merchant of Venice is about a Jew in England. People tend to watch The Merchant of Venice now in a post-Holocaust way, because it's about a Jew. This is completely inappropriate to Elizabethan England, but it's how people will naturally watch the Merchant of this. Similarly, Othello is about a man from Africa who is among white people. People tend to see Othello in terms of modern racial conflict, either within the United States or in Europe. Again, it's quite inappropriate to what the play is actually doing. I'll give you one more example, The Taming of the Shrew, which is about a, a, a man wooing uh, a woman who is a shrew that is somebody who is uh, fearsome and, and angry and, and um, bad tempered and so on and so forth and he tames her now this play is always seen now when it's performed as it, it's performed in a way that comments on or is informed by feminism it, it's a natural thing to do but it's also irrelevant to Tudor England now I found that in reading Hafez people who are not literary critics or literary historians. Of course, most of us aren't. <coughs> and why should we be? There's lots of other things to do in the world. Thank goodness. I mean, if everybody were, I'd be out of a job. So I'm, I'm glad everybody isn't. On the other hand, people people will read Hafez, and they will read him as if he is a modern poet. Uh, and this, really, when you get to know the 14th century and the, the, the history and the milieu, the literary milieu of, of Shiraz in the 14th century, it does distort Hafez. It does, It does. well, of course you can say, well, the poems will bear this interpretation in the same way that you can say the taming of the shrew will bear a feminist interpretation. That's fine. But what you are doing is extrapolating into a modern idiom something that belongs to another time. If you're really going to get at Shakespeare, if you're really going to get at Hafez, you have to know something about the time. So... I'm going to throw quite a lot of information at you, uh, and, I, th- and I, I made notes, and I thought, my god, there's far too much there for one talk. So <clears throat> I'm, going to, uh, I'm going to give you a list of uh, the sort, sort of categories I'm going to talk about. First I'm going to talk about the history of the period when Hafez was writing, because this is very important. Um, the history is – uh, sorry, let, let me backtrack slightly. Hafez is a court poet, as most poets, of course, of the period were, though not all poets, and Attar is a poet who wasn't a court poet, for example, Mesamie wasn't a court poet, but most poets were. Uh, Hafez is a court poet. He's extremely interested in what happens at the court. A lot of his poems refer directly to things happening at the court. They refer directly to his king, or his kings, because he was a poet under more than one king. Um, They refer to political events which, in fact, the overthrow of one of these kings, Hafez's favourite patron, Abu Eshaq, was uh, overthrown when Hafez was about 40 years old. Uh, And a a new dynasty came in and ruled ruled Shiraz at that time. That's all reflected in Hafez's poetry. The guy who came in, in the new dynasty, he was a completely different kind of of, uh, king from... From Abu Eshar, and that had an enormous effect on the poetic life of the city, and it had an enormous effect on Hafez's poetry. So, all, all these things, the history is important. I'm going to talk about the history first. Then, I'm going to talk about. I hesitate, let me say, I'm going to talk about the question of Sufism in Hafez's poetry. Is Hafez a Sufi poet, or isn't he? Now, the consensus is that he is. I'm going to question that. I'm not going to say he isn't, I'm going to problematize it, and I hope nuance it. Then I'm going to talk about something that I think is very trivial, but is in fact something that Hafez, or two things in fact, they're related, two things that Hafez talks about obsessively in poem after poem after poem, and these are wine and music. I'm going to talk about wine and music as they occur in Hafez's poetry, and how we should interpret them. Then I'm going to talk about the commentaries on Hafez. I'm not going to say much about this, but the commentaries on Hafez because Hafez, Hafez, there's a paradox. Most poets who become very popular in their own lifetime are fairly easy to understand. Hafez is notoriously difficult to understand. Or, I mean, you can be reading a poem by Hafez and everything is going nicely, and then you come to a bait and you think, "What the hell does that mean?" <clears throat> and this is, hap- I mean, this happens to everybody I think who reads Hafez. It certainly mm-hmm. happened to me. Uh, so. There are, always, there are very often moments in Hafez, even somebody who's very sophisticated in Persian literature, which I'm not claiming to be at all, but even an Iranian who has up, grown up with Persian literature from childhood and read it and, and knows a great deal about it, you will come across moments in Hafez when you think, what the hell is going on here? Um, paradoxically, Hafez became extremely popular in his own lifetime, which is very rare for a poet who is that difficult. Uh, but I think the, 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 two, the two are not uncorre- unconnected, because he is a poet who is obviously quite difficult to understand at times. He attracted commentaries quite quickly, and more commentaries have been written on Hafez than on any other Persian poet, including, I think, Rumi. There's an awful lot of commentaries written on on Hafez, from pretty pretty well within a gener- within two or three generations of Hafez's death. Now these commentaries change enormously. The modern commentaries. The 19th century commentaries and the 20th century commentaries are utterly different from the 15th and 16th century commentaries, quite different, and it's interesting to compare them. It shows that the view of Hafez has changed, in fact, changed quite radically. So I'm going to talk about that uh, briefly, and then I'm going to finish by talking about something which I feel everybody will hear, will feel, well, I know all about that, but I I hope I'm going to nuance it a bit, which is Hafez's tachalos, his pen name, Hafez. What does this word mean? We know what it means, but there's a but. And many of you will know what the but is, but some of you may not. So that's, <clears throat> that's the. When should I, well, how, long, how long should I talk? Where's our boss disappeared to? Our boss is here. Our boss is here. Well, uh, <laughs> there you are. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I beg your pardon. <laughs> Don't you, Akbar, I'll go dad Till about half past, or a little, a little beyond half past, he Okay, okay, okay. And there
0: are, please, I forgot to mention, there are copies of the books, and he has, he doesn't know it, but he has agreed to
1: sign them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always very happy to sign my books. I'm going to sign it, Akbar, old Right. <laughs> okay. The history. I'm going to start with the history, and then after I talk about Hafez I'm going to talk a little bit about Jahan Khatun I'm not going to talk about Obeid Izzalcani because everybody knows about Obeid, I'll talk a tiny bit about Obeid I'll talk about Obeid actually as I'm talking about the history (coughs) Now, we're talking about the 14th century in Shiraz, Hafez is born probably in 1315 If you look up uh, books about Hafez or articles about Hafez, the date given is often 1325 Uh, That date has been revised fairly recently in the past 30-40 years or so uh, and the, the consensus of scholarship, this is not my scholarship, this is not the kind of scholarship I do but the consensus of scholarship of literary historians is that he was probably born in 1315. He died in 1389 or 1390, that date is fairly certain. So we're talking about 14th century Shiraz. The 14th century in Shiraz was an extraordinarily violent time. Let me give you one very brief example. Uh, between I've got to find these dates in among my awful um, notes yes between 1339 and 1344 so when Hafez was sort of around 20 as it were in his late teens between 1339 and 1344 there were 8 changes of government in Shiraz and Fars. that is the Farce was ruled by the ruler of Shiraz um, the ruler of Shiraz Shiraz being the capital of Farce and the whole of Farce was ruled by the ruler there were eight changes of government in five years and every time there was a change of government blood ran in the palaces and often in the streets too so it was an extremely violent period to be living through this has its effect on all three of the poets who are in the book which uh, Abbas uh, Professor Milani my, my friend who calls me Akbar Oga just <laughs> mentioned um, uh, All three of them, that is uh, Hafez, uh, Jahan Khantun and Abed This this violence uh, is reflected in their poetries in in different ways Two families are particularly important For understanding the historical milieu In which Hafez's poetry was written These are the Inju family uh, And the family of Mubarez al-Din Who was the king, or the warlord in fact Who made himself king Uh, Really he was a kind of piratical thug but he made himself king who defeated the injured dynasty and killed all the males in it. Uh, Jahan Khatun was very nearly killed too. She was a female of that dynasty, but she was spared. She was imprisoned and then exiled, but she wasn't killed. She has a poem, which I hope I have time to read, at least in my translation, um, uh, in which an extraordinary poem, it could almost be a modern poem, in which she describes herself imprisoned, she says, in a school, more ruined even than my heart, she says the school is. It's a very moving poem She describes herself as imprisoned in the school And in the next room The people who have captured her Are discussing what to do with her It's an extraordinary poem It could be a modern poem And it's so specific in a way that Medieval poems very rarely are Um, I'll read that poem later So Jahan Khatun was certainly uh, uh, Affected by the violence of the times And by the change of government uh, which, Which destroyed her own family The Inju family Now the Inju's Um, They didn't last for very long Jahan Khatun's father in fact Was the second Inju king But he only lasted four years And he was murdered And then a couple of years later Jahan Khatun's uh, father uh, Who was called Masud Shah uh, Masud Shah was murdered And then a couple of years later His younger brother murdered the murderer and became uh, king of Shiraz. So uh, um, Jahan Khatun's uncle became king of Shiraz. And this was Abu Eshag, who was the major patron of Hafez. Now, Abu Esha, we know quite a lot about Abu Eshag. Abu Esha, um was a person who really loved a good time. He was famous for the amount of wine he drank. Uh, he was certainly somebody who was extremely fond of wine. Uh, and he was also famous for his love of music. Uh, But he was most famous for his love of poetry, and he was a great patron of poets, and he attracted some of the most famous poets of Iran to his court. Khaju was part of his court. Khaju was an old man by then, but he was part of uh, Abu Eshaut's court. Uh, Hafez, of course, Jahan Khatun, who was his own niece, and I have a feeling she took up poetry to please him because he loved poetry, and of course he had saved her. Her father had been murdered when she was a teenager, and he kept her in the court and pampered her and cherished her and so forth. Uh, and obeyed. Uh, he, he had obeyed in his court, though for how long, we're not sure. Um, so he he loved wine, he loved music, and he loved poetry. He was a lousy soldier, and he was a lousy strategist, unfortunately. His reign lasted for ten years. Reading Hafez, or even reading Jahan Khartun or obeyed, but reading Hafez especially, you feel that his reign had lasted forever, because Hafez talks about him so often and so warmly and with such affection, But Hafez's most touching poems about about him were written after he had died. Uh, There are a number of poems in which Hafez um, remembers him and regrets his death. In fact, I'll I'll, I'll read one of them, uh, or a bit of one of them. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Um, My notes are a mess. (coughs) 58, I think it is. Um, this is a poem uh, which Hafez certainly wrote in memory of Abu Eshav. We know that it's in memory of Abu Eshav because he actually mentions him towards the end of the poem. Um, so that's not a kind of surmise of, of critics later on. It's, it's stated in the poem itself. For those of you who know Persian, which I think is most of you, the, the, f- the first line of the poem, the first mesra of the poem at least, is Yad bad anke sale toan manzel bud. I'll, read, I'll say it again, because my accent is terrible, and you missed it. Yad an to'am manzel Which I translated, I once lived on the street that you lived on. What memories I once lived on the street that you lived on. Now I'm going to read a bit of my translation of the poem. Uh, this is a lament for Abu Ashab after he, he had been killed by this warlord called Muzaffar al-Din. Last night, for old time's sake, I saw the place where we once drank. A cask was lying there its leaves like blood, mud was its bone. How much I wondered, asking why the pain of parting came, but reason was a useless judge, and answers he had none. And though it's true the turquoise seal of Abu Azharg shone brightly, his splendid kingdom and his reign were all too quickly gone. Hafez, you've seen a strutting partridge whose cry sounds like a laugh. He's careless of the hawk's sharp claws by which he'll be undone. Now the hawk there is, the, the, the partridge is Abu Es Hawk. The hawk who snatches the partridge and kills him, and the, the partridge is laughing. Abu Es was somebody who enjoyed life. Uh, his cry sounds like a laugh. The hawk uh, snatches the partridge and the hawk is Mabar Es Haq. Interestingly enough, Um, Obeid Izarqani also has a wonderful poem, it's one of his best poems I think and it's one of the few poems that isn't obscene, thank God Um, Obeid also has a wonderful lament for Abu Eshag in which again he uses this bird imagery and he talks about the nightingales of Abu Eshag's garden by which he means the poets of his court and he says that all these nightingales are gone now and in their place is a harsh black crow who is again who is Moveres al-Din. So the the historical circumstances which these poets lived in had a great effect on the poems There is the, spe- the specific event of the Injur's loss of power but there is also the fact of, I said that there were eight revolutions in five years or eight changes of government in five years in Shiraz in, in one particular period There is also this sense of the immense instability of human affairs which is, I mean, that's, it's, it's a commonplace in Persian medieval poetry, but it's particularly strong in, in the poets of Shiraz uh, in the 14th century, because it was an extremely turbulent time. In Shiraz, it was a very violent time, uh, and anybody who got power could lose it very quickly. Um, the Inju family were interesting. Um, Iran had been conquered in the previous century um, uh, by the Mongols, of course, and the ruling families of Iran, the Mongols didn't really unify the country. Different parts of the Mongol families went off and ruled different parts of Iran. The Injus were part Mongol, but they, had, they married with the previous conquerors of Iran, who were Seljuks. So they were part Mongol and part Seljuk. And, they, and those two families, those two um, tribes, also intermarried with the lo- local Persian aristocracy. So they were part Mongol, part Seljuk, and part Persian. They were a real hybrid um, dynasty and they were not unlike other dynasties in, in Iran at this time. One of the things about the Injus, and this is important for, Jah- for Jahan Khatun, for the princess, and also it, it makes a difference, I think, to how we read some of Hafez's poetry. One of the things about the Injus was that they were seen by other dynasties at the time as remarkably lax in terms of their sort of keeping up with the moral norms of, uh, of Islam, particularly in their attitude towards women. I think this is a heritage of their Mongol and Seljuk uh, uh, background. The Mongols and the Seljuks were originally uh, nomads before they came to Iran Uh, and nomadic peoples do not or very rarely have the gender uh, roles distinct in the way that they are in settled peoples and because the gender roles, I mean in a nomadic society you can't seclude women women have to do everything, that, because they have, to, they have to be on them you can't have half the women not, not doing anything and sort of secluded away and just doing the cooking or whatever it is they have to be there to look after the flocks to, to, to do everything that the men do and they pretty well do in nomadic societies this means that in nomadic societies there doesn't tend to be this very strong and this is still true in, nomadic, in, in, the, in the tribal parts of Iran now the women are much more uh, out there in the society than in the settled parts of, 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 of Iran in, in many cases, or in the more traditional settled parts of Iran, in, in the more traditional cities, in the in the more old-fashioned quotation mark cities, we could say. It's still true. Now, the inheritance of the Injus in this way meant that women, for example, took part, part in court life. They were not secluded from court life, as they were in most Islamic courts at this time. Jahan Khatun was taught to read and write, which was extraordinarily rare for a woman at this time, but she was taught to read and write as a child. This too I think comes from this, this sense that what men do women can do too. One thing, one thing that's really extraordinary to us is that there is a lot of evidence that the women of the Injuk Inju court did not go veiled that they in fact um, went out um, unveiled uh, into not, not only in the court but they went out into the city unveiled. There's one sort of bit of evidence of this which is a kind of reverse bit of evidence as it were, which is that I I talked about all these different coup d'etat and revolutions that happened in the city during one of these a particular princess was escaping from the palace because it had just been taken over by an enemy and in order to escape she veiled herself and she ran out and she ran through the bazaar veiled and somebody in the bazaar thought he recognised this person under the veil, God knows how but he thought he did, perhaps from the way she was running or whatever it was, and he snatched her veil off and she was recognised. Now the fact that she was recognised means that she had been in the bazaar unveiled. Um, it, it obviously shows that. There's a nice end to that story. The people who, who recognised her, they were on her side and they saved her. So that, that princess survived. That's good. That wasn't Jahan Khatun; that was another princess. But um, So she got away, fortunately. Um, but that is evidence that she had gone in the bazaar unveiled. Uh, and as I say, the women of the court, the women of the Inju court, they took part in court life and they They had a much more equal role with men than was usual in in most of the courts of the Islamic world, in fact, not just Iran at this time in the 14th century. Now, the inju King Abu Azhar, I said he was a pleasure-loving king. He loved wine, he loved music, uh, he loved poetry. Poetry was his great love. He was a great patron of poets. The guy who took over, Mobarez al-Din, was an absolute, total, complete royal pain in the neck. He was the most awful king. And it's easy to say he was the most awful king because everybody who wrote about him says he was the most awful king. I'll give you a couple of anecdotes about Mobarez al-Din. These are not from Hafez or Jahan Khatun. These are from the historian Mir Khan, uh, who wrote quite a lot about Mobarez al-Din. Uh, he was said to be extremely pious and he was said to be extremely brutal. And the two went together. And um, the two anecdotes, well, one of the anecdotes sort of directly illustrates that. The the anecdote is that Mabres al-Din was praying one day. He was in the middle of his prayers. And uh, one of his henchmen brought in a couple of captives of an enemy. And uh, uh, Mabres al-Din completed the section of the prayer that he was in the middle of. And he stood up and he cut their heads off and then he went back and finished the rest of his prayers so that was Al Din for you very pious, very brutal, together the other um, uh, anecdote about him is that his son once said, to this is in Mirkhan too his son once said to him uh, is it true, daddy that um, you've killed over a thousand people with your bare hands and he said oh no, it's not true at all, it's no more than 800 <laughs> so that's Mobrez al-Din for you. Mabrez al-Din forbade music, he forbade, he forbade wine. There had been a lot of music and wine in, in Shiraz before Mobrez al-Din turned up. He forbade music, he forbade, forbade, forbade wine, he forbade sexual relations outside of marriage. As I said, he was a real pain in the neck. He also wanted to destroy Saadi's tomb because he thought Saadi's poems weren't Islamic enough. Saadi, of course, was the great poet of the 13th century, buried in Shiraz. Uh, and Mobrez Al Din thought that his poems were too secular, uh, and that uh, uh, he should, um, his tomb should be destroyed. There was an echo of that after the Islamic Revolution, but I won't go into that. Which was not Saadi's tomb; it was Ferdowsi's tomb. But a very similar thing <coughs> happened. But anyway, but in both cases, the tomb survived, thank goodness. So that's Mobrez Al Din for you. Now, Hafez has an awful lot of poems about how awful this man is. He also has an awful lot of points about um, the fact that wine was forbidden. Morais al-Din lasted for five years. Uh, and the, sh- the Shiraz is um, perhaps because of the injuries, perhaps just because Shiraz has always been like this. It has the most fabulous climate, as everybody knows, it's very beautiful. It's always been a city which uh, has enjoyed sensual pleasures, as it were. It doesn't hold back from having a good time. It's always had this reputation. Um, um, really since it's existed and, and that reputation still survives to an extent despite the Islamic revolution um, uh, uh, and the Shirazis were completely contemptuous of Mobarez al-Din though they were extremely afraid of him too and the, 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 their nickname for him was Muhtaseb uh, which I translated as the morals officer originally the, the Muhtaseb was the person who, who went round the bazaar um, seeing that the weights and measures uh, were true weights and measures in the bazaar, and the people who any merchants who had cheating weights and measures, for example, could be punished by the muhtasib. But later on, the muhtasib just became the person who went around regulating everybody's morals, a bit like those people in Iran now who go around telling women that they're showing too much hair at the front and they should pull their veil down and so forth, that they, well, they shouldn't have. Uh, nail varnish on, and that kind of st- that kind of thing. It, so, th- th- and the, the the Shirazis referred to him as the the, Mohtaseb, the 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 morals officer, which is is an indication of their contempt for him. And Hafez quite often uses the word Mohtaseb always in a derogatory way. He never uses it in a positive way, and he's it's virtually certain that he's always referring to Mubarez al Din when he does this. The story about the um, of the what I said, beginning as the person who regulates weights and good heavens, rates, weights and measures. It reminds me of the of, of the joke. It's one of the first jokes I heard when I went to Iran of this little boy who's who's who gets a job as an apprentice at a carpet store, uh, and uh, he's terribly pleased. It's his first day, and he's very pleased. He, he wants to do well, and he's sitting at the back of the carpet store, and this customer comes in, and the, the carpet dealer starts talking to the customer, and the customer shouts out to him shouts out, Akbar, we'll call him Akbar. He shouts out to him, Akbar, go and fetch me the measuring rod. It would be a rod then rather than a tape. And Akbar shouts back, do you want the selling measuring rod or the buying measuring rod? (laughs) (laughs) That's what the Muhta said was originally for. (laughs) Now I was going to give much more about history but I think we've we've got enough to, to have set the scene as it were. Obeda uh, Zakani and Hafez both left Shiraz uh, whilst Mubrez um, uh, uh, al-Din was king he only lasted five years his son, believe it or not Shah Shah his son was, became called, his son even his son got fed up with this extremely brutal rule uh, this extremely repressive rule no wine, no music no fun, no anything um, just lots and lots of prayers and killing um, and his son uh, led a coup against his father, had him blinded, and sent him off to Bam uh, near Kerman, which is where Mobrez al Din's sort of base was, and he died in prison. And Shasharjah ruled almost until Hafez died. So Shasharjah had a, 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 a much longer um, time as ruler than his father had done, and he seems to have been. Uh, somebody who was very keen to reverse these very draconian anti-pleasure laws of his father and he invited the poets who had left Shiraz uh, Hafez seems to have gone to Baghdad there is one poem by Hafez in which he talks about Isfahan he talks about the river Dirud and he talks about karam the the garden, the garden near Isfahan so he may have gone to Isfahan as well at this time Hafez certainly visited Isfahan at some point point. of course Hafez has a couple of poems about missing Shiraz, being away from Shiraz, about being a traveler. Um, but Hafez and Obaid both came back, and Jahan Khartoum, who had been imprisoned and then exiled, she too seems to have come back. And Jahan Khartoum has, in fact, one Hasideh in praise of Shah Shajar extraordinarily enough, but she obviously made her peace with him and she seems to have lived in Shiraz for the rest of her life and died there. Um, she probably died in her 60s. Okay, that's enough of the sort of history background, I think. Now, in talking about the... Um, the I talked about Abu Eshag's love of wine. Uh, Hafez was a court poet. He wrote his poems for the court. Uh, this is important. When you have a court poet, court, court art tends to reflect the taste of the king. Obviously, the king is the patron. The king is going to pay you. Uh, If you don't produce things that the king likes, you're not going to get any money. Um, So you produce things that the king likes. Uh, We tend to think, I I don't want to spend too long on this, it'll it'll, it'll, it'll take forever, but we tend to think of poetry as self-expression. This is not how the medieval period saw poetry at all. Poetry in the medieval period was a craft, now so there might be self-expression in there accidentally, as it were, but it wasn't the point of poetry. Poetry was something, which it was like it was like making a piece of jewellery, or it was like uh, weaving a beautiful piece of brocade, and which it, uh, is actually referred to in some poems. It's, it's compared to that. It's compared to weaving. Um, or uh, there's a lovely um, metaphor for, for medieval poetry in uh, the the um, the introduction to Ayyugi's Vargyogosha in which he says that the poet is like the woman, the mashate, the woman who adorns a bride uh, when she gets married, that is, who does her hair and makes her face up and does her eyebrows and makes her look as beautiful as possible. That is the poet's job to take a subject and make it as beautiful as possible. Now the machete, the the, the woman who does this, or the weaver of a brocade, or the maker of a a piece of jewellery, they're not into self-expression, and neither was the poet. Now there may be self-expression there as well, but it's not the purpose of the poem. The purpose of the poem is to make something beautiful, who judges whether it's beautiful or not? The person who's paying for it judges. Now, Hafez was employed by Abu eshag We know what Abu Eshag was like. Hafez's poems would have to please Abu Es If Hafez wasn't drinking at this court, he was the only person who wasn't drinking at this court. <laughs> which I think is extraordinarily unlikely. Therefore, I'm segueing into talking about Sufism now. Therefore, my feeling is that when Hafez talks about wine, He usually really means wine. Um, There are often overtones of Sufism. There is often a kind of glance at Sufism. There is a kind of punning reference to Sufism. But the basic meaning, I think, is the literal meaning. Now, um, again, I'm going to have to talk historically for a moment. Not uh, about the particular moment of Shiraz's uh, um, cultural milieu, but about how the present looks at the past or how, how later generations look at the past. There's a wonderful remark by the English scholar, uh, classical scholar and poet A.E. Hausman, uh, which is when I was, I'm, I'm retired now, but when I was a professor I always used to give this remark to every class I ever taught, which is every generation believes that its own prejudices are a habitation built for everlasting. <laughs> that is, every generation believes that we have got the world right finally, and everybody else before has got it wrong. You only have to think of, of, of political correctness now. We finally got it right. Everybody before us was wrong, we've got it right. Now, every generation believes that. Now, I, I, I don't want to take too long on this because it's, it's very complicated and it's only tangential to what we're talking about, but it does have a bearing on how, how much Sufism there is in, in Hafiz's poetry. How, it's, not a, it's, not a, uh, it's not a coincidence, I think, that the great efflorescence of, of medieval Persian poetry, which goes on for a long time, I mean, it starts really in the 10th century with somebody like Rabi'e and Rudaki, and it goes on really, I mean, the, 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 the usual poet was mentioned as the last great classical poet is Jami who dies in 1492, a nice, easy date for Americans to remember. Um, So it goes on for a long time, it's 500 years, but it virtually stops after that. When? When does it stop? It stops with the Safavids. It stops when Iran becomes a Shia country. Now, I don't think this is a coincidence. Of course, there still was poetry written, but there was never poetry of that level. There was never poetry. The intellectual energy of Iran stopped going into poetry in the way that it had done so before. This is not a criticism of Shi'ism, of course, far far be it. What I mean, far far from me to say something like that, Um, what I mean is that the intellectual atmosphere of Iran changed radically and suddenly Um, and the country became extremely self-consciously pious in a way that it hadn't been before. Uh, and you can see this everywhere, it's, it's, it's in everything, it's in, it's in all writing, it's in, it's, in, it's in the architecture, it's in everything the country, the country gives itself to piety in a way that it hadn't done before Now, of course, there had been a great deal of piety in Iran before, but piety had been one way of living among many others The Safavids were almost the first um, uh, dynasty since the pre-Islamic dynasties who united the whole country under one rule which meant that there weren't different ways of living in different places, which there had been before. And Shiraz was one of those places where there was a great deal of kind of uh, cultural difference and cultural variety and so on and so forth. The Safavids, I I use the word, they had a, well, one could use the word totalitarian, one could use the word absolutist. Let's say absolutist. They had an absolutist view of the country. This is how the country will be. Everybody will believe this. And if you don't believe it, you're in trouble. Um, So there was this, there was this, shift towards a very self-conscious rather aggressive piety but then there was all this very unpious poetry from beforehand so what, um, what uh, how does one deal with this, how does one appropriate this how does one, because the poetry was much loved, it's part of the Iranian identity, it's, 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 it's basic to what Iran feels itself is culturally, Cult- poetry is tremendously important but it's so much of it seems so secular so there was, what happened in fact was something, I'm going to use another analogy, it talks about Shakespeare at the beginning. My analogy here is what happened to Homer's works when Greece became Christian. When Greece became Christian, uh, the, we're talking about the Byzantine Empire, so I'm talking about sort of 4th, 5th, 6th centuries, around that time. When Greece became, became Christian, when the Byzantine Empire became Christian, there was this awful problem of what to do with all these, these pre-Christian poets. And all these gods, these pre Christian pre Christian gods, there was sort of Jupiter and, and, and Zeus and well, Zeus and Jupiter the same person, but all, all, these, all these all these Apollo and, and Dionysus, and what do you do with all this stuff which we don't believe in anymore? It's all terrible. What happened, for example, to the Odyssey, which is a poem about sort of this piratical old sea captain going around the Mediterranean because he's lost and can't find his way home, and finally finding his way home after a war? The Odyssey became interpreted as The voyage of the soul through life until it gets home, that is, to God. It's the voyage. So, the Odyssey, which is this extremely secular poem, became an allegorical poem about the journey of the soul to God. And in that way, Christians could read it. I think what happened with poets like Hafez uh, and other poets too, uh, but especially with Hafez. This Hafez to me is a very secular poet who plays with the idea of Sufism, but I don't believe he's a Sufi at all. In fact, Hafez mentions the word Sufi quite often, which is one reason I think that people have said, oh well, there's lots of Sufism in poetry. But if you actually read what he says about Sufism, almost every time he mentions it, he condemns it. He very, very rarely says it's a good thing. He almost always says they're bloody hypocrites, along with a lot of other people too. the notion that Hafez is a Sufi, I think, was a way of keeping this very secular poetry in a very pious society. That is, saying to oneself, uh, this is still poetry that we can read and love, because when it talks about uh, wine and the beloved, it's really talking about the love of God and the intoxications of Erfan, of mysticism, and so on and so forth. Now, Hafez encourages you to do this because he plays with those notions. Those notions are dotted about in his poems. But, my feeling is that it is a, re- Hafez is an extremely sophisticated, clever poet, and sophisticated, clever poets they play with, I mean, they, they, um, they're ludic poets, they're poets who enjoy playing with rhetorical strategies, and Su- Sufism I think in Hafez is largely a rhetorical strategy, I don't think It is a matter of personal belief Now that doesn't mean that there's no religious feeling in Hafez There's an awful lot of religious feeling in Hafez But it is very inspecific And in fact whenever anybody wants to sort of go for dogma Hafez says I'm not going there with you He goes off somewhere else in one of the things that Sufi poetry does is it says, I mean, if you look at a Sufi poet like Attar or a Sufi poet like Rumi or Eragi these Sufi poets, they say that there is one truth which trumps everything else and you have to de- devote your life to this truth. Hafez constantly says, We cannot know what the truth is. Hafez constantly says, Not this, not this, perhaps this, no that, not that. That is, Hafez constantly cuts the ground under, un, from under the notion that there is one truth. His poems slip, from, uh, 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 his, they slide, as it were, from insight to insight. They never stay focused on one thing. This is very different from the poems of Attar or Rumi, or Eragi, for example, three poets who are undoubtedly Sufi and put all their energy into Sufism and propagating Sufism. Hafez doesn't do that. My own feeling is that the Sufism of Hafez is something that has been read into the poetry later on, largely. As I say, Hafez flirts with Sufism. He talks about Sufism, almost always negatively, as I said, Uh, and this encourages the idea because he talks about Sufi ideas and also he does talk about religion. He says, "I I am a bird from paradise who is trapped, this is a common metaphor, it's not Hafez's own metaphor it's common in in the poetry of the period but he says I am a bird from paradise who is trapped in in, in my body, in the earth etc and I will return to God. There's a lot of religion in Hafez but it is not religion which is tied to a specific dogma and I don't think it was tied to a specific set of Sufi beliefs either. Though Hafez does quite often mention himself as wearing the Sufi cloak but when he does he always says enough of that, I'm going to get rid of it that is the, the implication, if, if one can believe his poetry, and um, using medieval poets uh, uh, poems as autobiography is very tricky, but the implication in Hafez is that he had flirted with Sufism, where he had even thought of himself as a Sufi, but then he thought better of it, that then he thought he, he thought, "No, this is not for me." That's the feeling I get from his poems anyway. This is supported by the commentaries. I talked about the commentaries. The earliest commentary on Hafez that we have, we know that there was a previous one, but it's disappeared. The earliest commentary we have is that by Sudi, which is, now Sudi wrote in Turkish, which I can't read, I've read the Persian translation of it. Um, It's very long, it's four volumes in the Persian translation. Uh, And Sudi wrote in Turkish for a Turkish audience. Because he's writing for a Turkish audience, that is, he's writing for an audience which has learned Persian, that is, not for an audience that has has sort of imbibed Persian and grown up with it, with its mother's milk, as it were, but an audience for whom Persian is an accomplishment, that is, something you learn, like you learn French in school or something like that, or like I learned Persian. Um, uh, Because he's writing for such an audience, he explains absolutely everything. I mean he explains every word, he explains every grammatical movement, he explains every every metaphor and Sudi almost never mentions Sufism, almost never, just occasionally. When he does, it's always justified by very obvious vocabulary within the poem. If Hafez talks about angels for example, or if Hafez talks about heaven, which he does in some poems. Sufi will uh, Sudi will then give a sort of Sufi tinge to his interpretation, but mostly there's very little Sufism at all in Sudi. Now Sudi is the earliest commentator and the closest to Hafez's time. If we follow, if we're taking Sudi's word for it, obviously in that period, um, uh, Sudi's dates are very vague. Every, every place that Sudi's mentioned, when it gives dates, they give different dates. It's very hard to find out exactly when Sudhi lived, but he seems to have lived at the beginning of the 16th century, perhaps the end of the 15th. Um, but it seems that at that time, Hafiz's poems were not, were not interpreted mystically at all this mystical interpretation now, as you read commentaries that get closer and closer to now, they become more and more and more mystical and they insist on more and more of the poems being seen as Sufi allegories rather than as what they appear to be about, which is wine and the love of human beings and so forth that is, the Sufism is something which is read into the poems by later generations I'm gonna I'm gonna finish by talking about the word Hafez. I think everybody well I'm gonna finish talking about Hafez, then I'll talk very briefly about Jahan Khatun just because I like her so much and I don't want to leave her out. Um, the word Hafez, if you ask anybody who knows anything at all about Hafez what the word Hafez means, he will tell you it means a person who has memorised the Quran. Uh, by extension it means a person who recites the Quran. And, of course, this is a meaning of the word hafez. But it is not the only meaning of the word hafez, and it was not the main meaning, it was not the chief meaning, it was not the meaning that would spring to mind of a person in the 14th century. It was a secondary meaning. The chief meaning of the word hafez in the 14th century, and this is where historical knowledge really does change how you read a poet. The chief meaning of the word hafez in, in, the, in the 14th century, that those of you who don't know this are going to be profoundly shocked, <laughs> was a singer. A motret, in fact. The chief meaning of the word Hafez was a singer. The, um, the, the uh, Iranian scholar Homan Nater has written a wonderful book um, called Khonya dar dar Darsher Hafez. It's a very good book. And she lists, I think it's 16, it might be 15 or 17, but it's around 16. She lists 15 or 16 musicians who lived in Hafez's time or slightly later than Hafez, who used the word Hafez as in their performing name, as a kind of advertisement that they were a good singer. That is a Hafez was somebody who was a good singer. Now if you take that knowledge and you look at Hafez's poems, Hafez is besotted with music. He talks about music the whole time in poem after poem. He mentions, I counted them, he mentions 14 different musical instruments. He uses a number of very technical musical terms. He obviously knew music very well. He uses the word parade, for example. Now parade, obviously it means a veil, we know that, or a curtain, but it also refers to a particular moment uh, in a, damn, I forgot the name of the Persian word, but it refers to a particular, it refers to a moment when you when you sort of change direction within the tune. I forgot what the, what the modern Persian word is. He p- half his puns on the word parade in that sense a number of times. Um Hafez loves music. It's clear that he loves music. Sudi, I'm going back to Sudi, the first um, uh, commentator whose work we have, Sudi says at one point that Hafez was famous for the sweetness of his singing voice. Now this could be the sweetness of the way that he recited the Quran, but Sudi doesn't say that. He says the sweetness of his singing voice. I feel that the word that now, This utterly changes how we see Hafez. I think one of the reasons that people have been very reluctant to read Hafez literally is the word Hafez, because they say Hafez means a person who recites the Quran. A person who recites the Quran does not drink wine and write poems to pretty boys. (laughs) Does he? No, of course he doesn't. But a singer, that's exactly the kind of thing that singers did. (laughs) Now, I'm not saying that the the word Hafez in, in Hafez's name only means that. In fact, I think the opposite. I I don't think that at all. Um, As I said, Hafez often talks about religion. He often talks about wanting to know what is behind the veil, wanting wanting to know what things mean. He talks about that the whole time. He also says he doesn't know. So people who sort of see Hafez as this all-wise seer, well, Hafez isn't saying that. Hafez is saying, I don't know. He he often says that he will be forgiven by God uh, Despite the way people condemn him for his lifestyle And he says people condemn me for my lifestyle Which suggests that he didn't have a terribly respectable lifestyle Um, uh, uh, But he says that God will forgive me anyway He seems to feel assured of God's forgiveness His uh, His religion is a very kind, compassionate, benevolent one Much more so than Rumi Who can be very harsh to people he thinks are going on the wrong path Uh, much more so than than, than most people who present themselves as religious poets before Hafez. Hafez's religion is extremely welcoming and and compassionate and Hafez says explicitly that Jews and Christians and Magians that is Zoroastrians, they they can get to God too as well as 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 Muslims. He says that. Rumi doesn't say that. Rumi uh, sometimes skirts saying that, but Rumi has anti-Jewish anecdotes, he has anti-Christian anecdotes and so on and so forth. Rumi is a lot less sort of latitudinarian whatever religion you want than a lot of people think he is. If you actually read the Masnavi there's quite a lot of anti, a lot of other people in the Masnavi. Though Rumi's, you know I'm not mocking Rumi, Rumi's a great poet what I'm saying is that Hafez is a much more open poet religiously than Rumi is, which he certainly is Um, So I don't discount the religious meaning of the word Hafez, but nor do I discount the secular meaning. In fact I virtually feel that the reason Hafez chose this tachalos, this This pen name was that both meanings are there in it, and both meanings, which which is exactly what his poetry is like. Both meanings are in his poetry: the spiritual is in his poetry, and the secular is in his poetry, and. That word, Hafez, it had a spiritual meaning in Hafez's time, and it had a secular meaning. And that, I feel, is the main reason that he chose that word, because it went both ways, as it were. And his poetry incorporates both the spiritual and the secular. And his poetry is a kind of way of bringing those two together, in the way that the word Hafez brings those two together. Enough about Hafez. now, I'll, I'll, I'll stop altogether. Let me just say, read Jahan Khartoum. She's the most fantastic poet. She's almost unknown. I've said to so many people who do Persian in the past seven or eight years, who do Persian stuff, they say to me, what are you working on? I say, I'm translating the poems of Jahan Khartoum. Who? She's the, I'll say a tiny bit about her. She's the only... Uh, she, thank you. <laughs> as far as I know... She's the only woman poet from before the 19th century whose complete divan has come down to us. Uh, it's over 1,400 poems. It's a big divan. It was unpublished until 1995. It was published in Tehran in 1995. It's very well edited, and it has a fabulous introduction. And I'm... Oh, I actually, I'm, I'm forgetting the name of the, the uh, person who wrote the introduction, but I can tell you from here. It's, uh, it's in my acknowledgements. Which is, it's in here somewhere. Uh, it's edited by two people. Uh, one of them, significantly enough, is a woman. Puran Doq rod and Kamil Ahmad Najad. Not Ahmadinejad, Ahmadine Najad. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <coughs> oh, Akbar. Well, um, <coughs> She's the only woman whose who, who's complete divine has come down to us from before the 19th century. Um, she has a wonderful um, uh, and it, Something which is is rare for any poet at all, never mind a woman poet, uh, her complete divine, she has a preface to, to the divine in which she talks about the circumstances in which she became a poet. She says that she, she held back from writing poetry for two reasons. One she thought that it was improper for a woman to write poetry, it was immodest that women didn't write poetry. And then she said I found these Arab woman poets and some Persian woman poets too and I thought well if then why not me? So that's one reason. she. She held back, and then she found these poets, and she was inspired by her predecessors, women poets who went before her. Um, the other was that she's very, very modest about her her um, her poetry. She says, uh, "There's a lovely bait that she puts. I, I haven't got it in my, in my book, um, so I'm going to have to paraphrase it from memory." She says, "Those who are who are great-minded, they don't." Um, criticise those who are small and insignificant. So she's saying to to, to her readers be magnanimous, be generous, be be big minded and don't criticise me for my faults. But in fact she doesn't have to do that. Her poems are very beautiful. Her poems, they're mainly love poems but she has some fabulous political poems too. The poem I mentioned I'm going to read you that poem at least in my English translation. Um, She has, most of her poems are love poems if we can believe and it's very difficult to believe poets, uh, medieval poets as to autobiography but they're virtually all very sad love poems uh, we know who she was married to and I have a feeling it was an awful marriage uh, not the, uh, the specifics of her poems I mean they're often very very conventional extremely conventional they've got all the kind of whole kit and caboodle of, of, of uh, Persian uh, medieval love poetry—you know, nightingales and cypress trees and roses and the whole lot—it's all there. Um, but just occasionally, she will say something which you think, "Wow, I haven't seen that before in a ghazal." For example, she has one ghazal in which she's talking to her lover, and she says, "When you're with me, you're either drunk or you're asleep." Now, that you don't get that in a ghazal. <laughs> <laughs> drunk, she she says that. she says, usually you're not with me at all. And when you do come, you're drunk or you're asleep. What good is that to me? She says that in Martha's Point. So you do get the impression that, that, that things were not that great in her marriage. Um, uh, okay, the poem I mentioned about the school, here it is in my translation. Here in the corner of a ruined school, more ruined even than my heart, I wait. While men declare that there's no goodness in me. I sit alone and brood upon my fate and hear their words like salt rubbed in my wounds and tell myself I must accept my state I don't want wealth and I don't envy them the ostentatious splendor of the great what do they want from me though since I've nothing now that I'm destitute and desolate that poem is obviously written after her family fell from power and she had been captured and they were deciding what to do with her. But she can have very jolly poems too. She has a wonderful poem in which she says, Mavarez al-Din, you screwed me, I'm going to screw you. <laughs> I won't read you. I won't read you that poem. Yeah, buy the book, it's in the book. She has a, I mean, this is the last thing I'm going to read. She has a wonderful poem about Sufism. This is her take on Sufism. It's a Dobeti, so it's very short. I swore I'd never look at him again. I'd be a Sufi, deaf to sin's temptations. I saw my nature wouldn't stand for it. From now on, I renounce renunciations. Okay, thanks. For all the Sufis in the room, I apologize. But there <laughs> okay, any questions for Akbar? Yes. <laughs> uh, thank you very much for all the wonderful things that um, we thought us uh, tonight. Oh, uh, especially, I'd like to appreciate the fact that you shed light on uh, the notion of time in
0: the dark world, conference uh-huh. yeah, because I believe that's something that's been greatly you know, neglected. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyways, I'd like to ask you a question if you want to say... What uh, or did
1: you find most difficult to translate? Well, the gazelles that I found really difficult, I gave up on. Um, <laughs> so, I, I can't really remember, to be honest. I thought you were going to say something like, which gazelles did you find the most beautiful, or the most attractive? And I could answer that easily. But the ones that were hard, really hard well, I don't know, I'm suppressing them I guess, but I couldn't give you, I couldn't give you that. I tend to remember the ones that I was able to translate because I worked on them for a long time. I mean I would the poems I couldn't translate and there are there were a lot, you know. I'm not saying which one you couldn't translate, i say which one did you find kind of difficult to translate or most difficult to translate? Well you've been successful with that. <laughs> no, fail better is I suppose. Um, uh, I don't know. The ones I translated um, I worked in conjunction with my publisher, uh, Mage Publishers, Mohammed Bakmangalic, who owns the main Mage Publishers, and it was he who said to me, Dick, you must translate Hafez. And I kept saying, Mohammed, it's impossible, I'm not going to translate Hafez, don't ask me again. And he kept pushing me until I started. Now, there are a number of poems that he asked me specifically to translate, including some very famous poems. Uh, by Hafez, which were extremely difficult, but because he asked me I translated them uh, I mean the poem that starts off with the Arabic line, which I can never remember but then um, <laughs> that poem is easy at the beginning and it's easy at the end but the middle of that poem is actually hard to translate. that's really hard, the middle of that poem is very hard to translate, that was a hard poem The poem about um, the wonderful poems, it's a very beautiful poem, it's one one of Huff's most beautiful poems. Um, uh, I won't take long, I'll find it. I don't, I'm not saying this poem was difficult to translate but I kept going back to it and redoing parts of it. It was difficult actually um, because there's so much information in it. It's a very famous poem. It's as uh, as That poem it's such a dense poem. There's so much in that poem. And that poem is a poem that really um, talks about religion in quite deep profound ways and I, I, it's, it's reasonable to believe that there's more than a trace of Sufism in that poem I don't say there's no f- Sufism in, in Hoppers, there obviously is and there are some poems which are clearly Sufi poems but for me they are far outweighed by the poems that are clearly secular poems and then there are a lot of poems which can be read both ways and I think that's deliberate, you can read them either as Sufi or secular and to say that they are only Sufi seems to me a mistake they're meant to be both. You're meant to be able to read them either way. But that poem, which I, I my, my translation begins for years, my heart inquired of me where Jamshi's sacred cup might be and what was in its own possession it asked from strangers constantly, begging the pearl that slipped its shell from lost souls wandering by the sea. I worked on that poem a long time. Uh, I think it came out okay. But um, there are some poems in here that I just, I, I don't look <laughs> Any other questions? Yes, please. Yeah.
0: I would like to thank you for such a wonderful talk. Thank you. And I'm curious to know, if we can quantify,
1: how many percent of you know, the meaning of the abstract meaning of from is last translation? Ah, uh, how long have we got? <laughs> <laughs> Well, it depends a lot on the poet, you know. Um, each poet presents his or her own problems, and some poets are easier to translate than others. For example, Fredosi. Fredosi very rarely says two things at once. He tends to say one thing at a time, and he says it very strongly and very clearly. For this reason, Fredosi, as long as you understand all the words, and Fredosi has a relatively small vocabulary, so learning, that which is usual in epic poets. Epic poets tend to have quite small vocabularies. Um, uh, translating a, a Ferdowsi at a basic level is not that difficult. What's difficult in, uh, in, in, in Ferdosi is the tone because there is not a tradition of heroic poetry in English so there is not a heroic rhetoric to hand uh, in English which you can apply to Ferdosi. So getting the tone right is the difficulty in Ferdosi, but getting the meaning right is not difficult usually. I mean occasionally there are moments where you feel what, but usually um, and usually you can resolve those moments, you, you, you read other, what other people have written about it, you look in De Chodah and so on and so forth and you say that's what it means and then you can translate it um, but that's Ferdowsi But Hafez is almost the opposite extreme. I mean, Hafez is a poet who is constantly saying at least two things at the same time, and sometimes more than two things. He's constantly alluding. He alludes to other poets. He alludes to Iranian history a lot. Um, He will, I mean, when Ferdowsi, for example, mentions a king, he will give you the context. He will tell you the story you know all about the king. Uh, uh, Hafez will just say, and move on and he doesn't tell you anything about Siyawash, and you have to understand what Siyawash means. Now, how does one convey that? How does, how does one bring that across? That, I mean, that's a very simple example. Jahan Khartoum, for example, is a poet who is relatively easy to translate. Her poetry uh, her poetry is quite like Saadi's poetry, and in fact she mentions Saadi in one of her poems as her Ostad not literally I don't think but you know, she, she, it couldn't have been because he was dead before she was born but, um, but she, she obviously imitates Saadi now in the same way that Saadi's ghazals, the language is very pure and clear and limpid now that's like that's what Jahan Hartoun is aiming for which means that her language is fairly transparent, it's not hard to see what Jahan Khartoun is saying and, you, and she too, like Ferdowsi but a very different kind of poet, she says one thing at a time so, Jahan Khatun is not hard to translate, really, um, in many ways. Again, with Jahan Khatun, it's getting the tone right. It's a, it's a very feminine tone, which for a man is tricky. Um, and it, there's a kind of aristocratic gentleness there, which is quite hard to hit. But, you know, the, getting the actual meaning is not hard. Um, a poet, uh, the, the, the first translation I did, which I did with my wife, Afgham uh, Darvandi, we did it together. Uh, was the translation of the Mantaqatir of Attar. Now that, I mean, I, I I wonder at my own idiocy in taking that as the first thing I translated from Persian because it is an extraordinarily difficult poem to translate, and I couldn't have done it without my wife. Uh, we did it together, um, and um, and after that she said, "You're on your own, Dick." You know. Sorry. <laughs> um, but that um, Attar. The tone is not hard because Attar's tone is always clear, and the the kind of feeling of the poem is not hard. But the intricacies of the mystical message are quite difficult to bring across in Attar. And we spend a lot of time making sure we had that as right as we could. I I hope that. I mean, my, my basic answer is it depends on the poet. Some poems you lose a lot, Hafez you lose a lot. Some poets, you lose relatively little. little. Jahan Khatun, you, you lose relatively little, I think. Yes. Yes.
0: What evidence did you come across to say to the two and obey knew each other? Since they never mentioned each other in their poems. Okay. Uh, in the poems, uh, although
1: they did. The well, the evidence is circumstantial. They were both in, they were both in Shiraz at the same time. They were both uh, poets at the quarter of Abu Eshag. We tend to think of, I mean, perhaps when we think of Shiraz, we think of modern Shiraz, which is a big city. Shiraz was a very small city in the the 14th century. It was about 60,000 people. 60,000 people. It's very small, about the size of Palo Alto, even smaller, in fact. I don't know what the size of Palo Alto is, but it feels a small place. But um, Shiraz and the, the surrounding villages which were ruled by Shiraz it was about 200,000 people in all these are not my figures these are figures of historians who studied it and so forth now 60,000 people you have two poets who are both very famous they're both at the same court um, we know we know that we, we, we can sort of triangulate it a bit which is that we know that obeyed knew about Jahan Fartun and probably knew her personally because he has two poems about her, both of which are obscene. Uh, And that is interesting about the Injus. I mean, he wrote these obscene poems about their princess and nothing happened to him, which is extraordinary. I mean, you can imagine another princess saying, "I, I want his head on a plate. But uh, I mean, it, it, it suggests This very tolerant, easy-going family Everything about the Injus suggests That they were great people, it's just that they were lousy Rulers and, you know, they were no Good at soldiering either, so they didn't last long But they, it was fun to be at the court So Obeid and, and Jahan They certainly knew of each other We know that Jahan knew Hafez's poems Because she quotes one of his poems directly And she often alludes to Moments in Hafez's poems, often So, I, the evidence is circumstantial, but I feel certain that they must have known each other. Two famous poets employed by the same person at the same court. And although Obeid and Hafez are very different, there's uh, there's a lot of similarity too. I mean, there's a lot of rendi in, 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 in Obeid as well as in Hafez. The, I, I can imagine those two getting drunk together, uh, <laughs> having a very nice time. <laughs> yes? You
0: mentioned um, he would play the court boy. Mm-hmm. Uh, did, did
1: Obeid make money? I mean, did he pay Obeid for this kind of poetry? Uh, Obeid, ob- <laughs> <laughs> Obeid wrote other poems besides his obscene poems. and I mean, he wrote quite a few chassideh, praising kings and that kind of thing. He, he wrote the standard stuff as well. It's just that everybody wrote that stuff, so we don't remember him for that. What we remember him for is the thing that he did much better than anybody else which was write really dirty poems <laughs> because <laughs> n- there is the most wonderful and there's a, there's a poet who comes just, uh, who's, who's just after Obeid and Hafez and so on and so forth, so forth called um, Bos ha, uh, who wrote um, poems about um, cooking uh, he's, a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a poet who writes about food, cooking and he's a funny poet and he, he, has, a, he has a prose work uh, and in his prose work he, he talks about himself a Obeid and he says that, the, it's, it's a lovely passage this, he says uh, um, the, the, uh, the house of poetry, uh, there, are, there is a house of poetry and many different poets have built different rooms in this house. But when we looked at the house we saw that the house had no lavatory and it had no kitchen. And Obeid has built the lavatory and I have built the kitchen. <laughs>
0: Thank you. Uh, For us, as a reader of (coughs) coffee, what tools uh, you you can actually elaborate that you see the world through the eye of a thirteenth century or fourteenth century person, not a twenty-first century person?
1: Yeah. Well, it's it's very hard. Uh, One of the things, one of the first things I think to do, which is very hard for us, it's something I mentioned in passing which is that our notion of poetry is self-expression and this was not the medieval notion of poetry. Poetry was a craft. It was the making of something beautiful which would please the person who had paid for it. Now, because it's in language, because it's in words, it it says things as well and those things we can take as self-expression or not. But an enormous amount of Persian medieval poetry is conventional. An enormous amount of it is conventional. I mean, there are very few poets who bother to make up their own metaphors. This is not a criticism at all. It's just the way the poetry is. And the skill, it's like, for example, I use the analogy of jewellery. When you make a ring or a brooch or a belt buckle or something like that, there aren't that many different ways you can do it. Your skill is in using the conventions and using the... And you, everybody uses the same jewels. Everybody uses emeralds and diamonds and gold. and stuff. Everybody uses the same jewels. Everybody uses the same metaphors. And everybody produces the same kind of thing. Your skill is in the disposition of stuff which is already there. It's not stuff which you bring out of your, the depths of your own psyche, which is how we tend to think of poetry now. So I think the biggest jump... Is to appreciate that, then you have the feeling, Well, why should I be interested in this? If it's not self expression, why should I be interested in it? But as I tried to indicate with Jahan Khatun, it, you, despite the conventionality of it, you keep getting glimpses of the person through the conventionality. It's a bit like fashion. I mean, fashion in clothes, for example. Everybody, I mean, everybody in this room is wearing clothes which we see belong to this time. Nobody's wearing 18th century clothes, for example. Nobody's wearing 19th century clothes. We're all subscribing to the fashion, but within the fashion... There are lots of little things that mark off this person from that person and that person has a much better fashion sense than that person. That person looks really elegant and and lovely in her clothes and that person looks a bit of a frump. Um, So you can say the same thing in the poems. The fashion, the the artificiality, the, the set of conventions which everybody accepts, that goes across the board in medieval poetry but within that fashion you can still see individuality, the individuality of, of sort of skill and flair and uh, an understanding of what works aesthetically. <coughs> That's the big jump, I would say. <coughs> yes?
0: Uh, what do we
1: know about how skill in reading other languages, particularly Arabic? And do you think he may have been influenced by Arabic poetry? That's a very interesting question. Uh, I think the shorter answer is we don't know anything except the evidence of the poems and from the evidence of the poems Hafez uses quite a lot of Arabic in his poems uh, and he doesn't use Arabic with grammatical mistakes like some people do um, so, and my guess is that uh, Hafez actually knew Arabic fairly well also, I mean, if the meaning of, of Hafez, if one of the meanings of Hafez is a reciter of the Quran, I, I tend to believe that Hafez was not a reciter of the Quran. for one thing he makes fun of reciters of the Quran. he says they're all hypocrites Perhaps he was saying, I'm a hypocrite too, but I mean, if he says reciters of the Quran are hypocrites, that doesn't suggest that it's his profession. But anyway, um, somebody who, the very fact that he uses an Arabic word as his suggests that he knows Arabic to some extent. And my, my impression from Hafez is that he knew Arabic very well. I really doubt that he knew Turkish, but he might have done, it's possible. There were, there, there were Turkish speakers in Shiraz at, the, at that period. And Hafez is a very open poet. Um, you know, he's he's a poet who's obviously interested in cultural difference and that kind of thing. In that way he's a modern poet, he feels like a modern poet. He's not a poet who's narrow. He doesn't he's not he's not a focus poet, he's an open poet. He says, you know, keep your keep your heart open, keep your mind open, he says that. Uh, he says, keep your, your mind open like a glass, he's talking about a glass of wine, not like the flagon which you stopper not like the flag on which the wine is in which you you stop it. You don't want your heart to be like that. You want to be be open. So I think Hafez was interested in other cultures, and it wouldn't surprise me if he he hadn't learned some Turkish too. But I would think that would be the extent of his knowledge of languages. So my answer is, his poetry suggests that he knew Arabic very well. Uh, Perhaps he knew Turkish too. That's it. Yes? Uh, Hafez actually has a a poem. One of verses says, Oh, well. That is yes, so and that may be the reason. Is, why should we take him literally? Here? I am not sure that that poem is actually canonical, but we can we can look. I'm not sure that that poem is in Khnari, but it might be. Um, I, and I'm not saying that 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 um, Hafez is. I, I'm not saying that that meaning is not there in Hafez. I'm saying the other meaning is there as well. I, I deliberately said, I think both meanings are there in, 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 in the name. Um, I was going to say something else to your question, but it's gone out of my head. Perhaps it will come Can I want return
0: your own question. Sure. Which gazal
1: did you enjoy most actually? The gazal <laughs> that, um, that I remember reading and just being completely floored by, because it, it seems so beautiful. And that was actually the result I thought, I've got to try and translate this stuff. It's so beautiful. And I look for English translations, and the ones that existed were dreadful, is, is the Ayat Gongashteh Barzayat Machor. That is such a fantastically beautiful poem. Um, and there are a lot of poems by, and by, by Hafez. I mean, that's one of them. Um, but Yariyanda Kasnim um, Ibnam, Yaran Rochesha, that's a gorgeous poem. Um Achte Ben That's a wonderful poem. There are lots of them. There is, there's so many beautiful poems by Hofes. Yes? Do you have any sense of uh, how he got education, how he got his insightful in the To be honest, no. Um, he's obviously very educated. Uh, I mean, he's, his, his poetry is full of his education. In that way, I mean, he's. Uh, I mean, Saadi, for example, we know that Saadi was an extremely well-educated person, and that's apparent from his prose, but Saadi's poetry does not display education. His ghazals, for example, they don't display, they're not, I mean, I'm not saying that they're the chazals of an, of, of an ignorant man, but they don't display a lot of knowledge, whereas Hafez's do. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of references. There's a, I mean, Hafez, Hafez clearly knew a great deal about Iran's history, and it was difficult to know about Iran's history at that time. You know, Iran's history was a, was a mystery to most people. Um, but Hafez clearly knew something about Iran's history. He clearly knew the Sholome very well. He quite often alludes to figures in the Sholome. Uh, I'm pretty certain he knew Arabic well. I, Hafez is clearly a, a well-rounded person in terms of his education. I don't think he received a theological education um, because his take on theology is one of disgust, usually. He's, he's not into it at all. Uh, and, his t- and he really doesn't like theologians. Um, I mean, he sees them as hypocrites. Hypocrisy is the great sin in Hafez, um, pretending to be what you aren't. He's always going back to that, saying how awful it is. Yes? Thank you
0: for sharing with us your insights on the meaning of Hafez, and... Uh uh, regard regards to Sufism. Thank you. Um, Popes and the great poets, they tended to enter a poetic state before they could utter poetry. Mm-hmm. So it seemed like it was not at will, at immediate will. Mm-hmm. So my question is, when you try to translate these, um, do their poems induce in you a poetic state from which then you utter new poetry or do you do it more consciously by trying to just translate word for word and then getting the meter and the rhyme correct and doing iterations?
1: That's an interesting question. Um, I have talked about this in another context to a different kind of audience, um, and I'll try and reproduce what I said there. When when one writes one's own poems, and as as, um, uh, Professor Milani said, I've I've, I've written poems um, since I was a teenager, and I'm nearly 70 now, so it's a long time too long. When one writes one's own poems and when one does translations, there are two elements, both of which are present, but they're present in different proportions, I think. One is the element which is just, it's a little what you say about going into that state, it's the element which we might call inspiration, it's the element of Something comes to you, it's given uh, And then you work on that So there's, there, is that, there is that element which is cannot be forced And um, you can't decide you're going to have it uh, And when it comes, you're grateful and, and you take it from there, as it were So there is that element, that, that, that which is given to you Which comes from the unconscious, probably um, But then there is another element Which is that you work on the inspiration You work on what you have been given and you make it as beautiful as you can. I mean, that description I gave of the craft of poetry in the Middle Ages, it's something that I myself still believe in. I think that poetry is a craft as well as an expression. It's both. So, the craft is there. In one's own poetry, the inspiration is absolutely crucial, and the craft is secondary. In translation, the craft has to be primary, Because the inspiration is somebody else's. It's not yours. Nevertheless, when you're working on the poem, and this doesn't always happen, but it happens with the most successful translations in my own experience, something very similar to that going into the unconscious happens. You suddenly see how to do something and you don't see how you arrived at seeing it. It happens sort of without your... Without your working towards it, it just happens. Now, mo- in most moments in a translation, it's work. But but the most successful translations that I've done, the ones I feel most quotation marks happy with, the ones that are, are, are not are the are, are the best of the failures. They're the ones where something takes over, which you have not consciously willed, and that does the, the part, I mean, I, I um, Professor Milani mentioned that. I've translated Gorgoni's Biso Ramin, which is not a particularly popular poem, but it's a poem I completely fell in love with when I read it. It's a great poem. I think it's one of the great poems of the world. Um, I really do. It's a fantastic poem. Um, And a very underestimated poem. I think it's very underestimated in Iran because it's seen as immoral. But the actual poem is just wonderful. The the language is so beautiful. Um, When I was translating Biso Ramin, I really... Felt what you're talking about. I really went into that state quite often <laughs> because I, I was so taken by this poem. It seemed so beautiful. And it happened occasionally with Hafez, but not as often as I wished it would.
0: In that spectrum, follow well, up, in that spectrum which you just mentioned, from inspirational to crafty, yes. uh, where would you approximately place Fitzgerald, Warren Brothers, and
1: Arnold Nicholson? <laughs> oh, <laughs> you're you you're asking me to, to, to be rude about my my my, my peers. <laughs> I mean, I have the greatest respect for Fitzgerald. A lot of people say Fitzgerald is is, is uh, that he didn't really know Persian very well. That that um, he, he's not a very faithful translator. In fact, we know that Fitzgerald, uh, Fitzgerald's, Fitzgerald's teacher was a man called Cowell. Um, and Cowell went off to India and his parting present to Fitzgerald was this manuscript, which he had copied it wasn't an old manuscript, he copied it from a manuscript in Oxford, in the Bodleian of uh, the poems of Kaya this was his parting present to, to, to Fitzgerald and Fitzgerald then worked on this and in fact Fitzgerald was in love with, with Cowell Fitzgerald was gay uh, I don't think Cowell ever realised that um, but Cowell went off to India and to stay in touch with Cowell Fitzgerald would send him letters about the translation and those letters still exist. And it's clear from those letters that Fitzgerald's Persian was actually pretty good. And that when he tr- changed things in the Persian, he knew what he was doing. It wasn't he did it because he, he didn't understand it. He knew what he was doing. But Fitzgerald's Persian was pretty good. I, I think Fitzgerald is fabulous. You know, I I mean, there is no translation into from Persian into English which gets the tone, the feeling, the, the sense of what the poems are like in the way that Fitzgerald does. I mean, and Fitzgerald, for me was my introduction to Persian poetry. I mean, when I was a teenager, I read Fitzgerald, and I just thought, this is fantastic. I learnt it off by heart. I think I still know a lot of it by heart. I just loved it, and it was one of the things that pushed me towards Persian. So I have the greatest respect for Fitzgerald, and there is a great deal of inspiration in Fitzgerald, a great deal of inspiration. The the Warner Brothers, it's all craft. There's very little inspiration at all, though it's craft which I respect. I mean, it, it's it's very decently well done, and I'm not knocking it at all. I mean, it's 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 a very um, workmanlike, honest, good translation, given their own talent, which, to be honest, is not that great. But it's it's. It, I mean, it's. I'm not knocking it. It's a good translation. Nicholson is a scholar, really. He's not a literary person, and Nicholson was really. I mean, Nicholson's translation of of, of the Masnavi. What Nicholson was really interested in doing was establishing the text of the Masnavi in Persian. And then he did his translation from the text that he had established. And sometimes, I mean, there's a famous remark about the poet Robert Browning who translated uh, Aeschylus, uh, Aeschylus's Agamemnon. And, and it was notoriously obscure English. And one of the reviewers said, Aeschylus' Greek is sometimes of great help in understanding Mr. Browning's English. <laughs> <laughs> And similarly, Rumi's Persian is, of, is sometimes a great help in understanding Nicholson's English. <laughs> that is, it's so close to the Persian that it's almost not English at times. Yes?
0: What is your uh, your advice for someone who wants to start with Hanavan's decision to just dive in to or um, can you, can you learn the history of that area first, to be able to see things through up eyes. That's kind of to build up that gentleman's point
1: over there. No, I, I, I mean, I would dive in. Uh, but I, I, it's, it's difficult. <laughs> but I would dive in. I mean, just uh, I, you know, dive in. I mean, I, if you want, to, um, um, I mean, uh, uh, are you Iranian? I'm sorry. Uh, well, then your your person just dive in. I mean, you, you don't need me to tell you this. <clears throat> this is like this is. There's a, there's a wonderful story about the tenor Franco Corelli, and um, oh damn, I'm forgetting his name. There was an American tenor. Uh, whose name I'm forgetting, which is which spoils the anecdote. But I, I'm I'm forgetting this American tenor's name, and this American tenor was he was Jewish, and he was he was he had been a cantor when he was a young man, and he he became. Does anybody know who I'm talking about? Anyway, this American tenor, uh, sorry,
0: no,
1: no, 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 I, he's, he's, he's German and he's alive. This we're, we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> This is an American tenor who's long dead And I saw him and I'm forgetting his name, it's awful um, Anyway, he was famous for singing Puccini And when he was a quite old man uh, Franco Corelli Who was uh, this great Italian tenor Fabulous Italian tenor Very handsome And, and a you know, wonderful voice Franco Corelli was invited to the Metropolitan Opera To sing in La Boheme In Puccini's La Boheme And he came, and this American tenor Whose name I can't remember, was there And uh, um, um, this is you, an Iranian, asking me about <laughs> <laughs> about Hafez. and this this Franco Corelli said to him, "Oh, Mister, whatever his name is, which I can't remember." He said, "Oh, please give me some tips on how to sing Puccini," and this guy said, "Me tell you how to sing Puccini? For God's sake, you're Italian; you can sing." Puccini. He said, "No, no, no. You sing Puccini so beautifully. Please tell me how do you sing Puccini," and he thought for a bit and he said, "Well, first you have to be Jewish." <laughs> So first, you have to be a Brit, okay? <laughs> yes.
0: You mentioned that uh with the office uh, travel to Baghdad uh, or some other places. Yes. What we, uh, I, what I remember uh, hearing or listening to our uh, director Matthew.
1: He was a wonderful he, critic. He yeah. was
0: uh, actually in office, was very reluctant
1: to uh, travel, and he was actually very... You know, so what evidence to be out there was in Baghdad? Um, he, says, he says in one poem, which is obviously about Mobrez al-Din's takeover of uh, um, uh, uh, Shiraz, he says at the end of the poem, Uh, Things are so awful here, I better go somewhere else. And he mentions two places that he might go to one is Tabriz and one is Baghdad. He actually mentions those two places. Now, the ruler of Baghdad at that time was a man called Sultan Oves. Uh, And Sultan Oves became one of Hafez's patrons. And Hafez quite often mentions him in his poems. So that's the suggestion that perhaps he went to Baghdad and worked under Sultan, became a poet for Sultan Oves. Um, but that, I mean that's the, only, that's the only we know that Hafez left Shiraz at least once there is the, there is the poem about Isfahan. Uh, and also there are a number of poems, three or four poems in which he talks about being a stranger there's that wonderful poem about it's one of the poems I couldn't translate actually I tried and I couldn't get it about um, being, a, being a stranger and saying your prayers at night and, and knowing that there's nobody around I can't remember the Persian um, so we know that he, he did leave Shiraz and it's almost certain and he left Shiraz when Mobarez al-Din took over because he has a lot of poems about how awful Mobarez al-Din is and he, if he'd written those poems in Shiraz he would have had his head cut off because that's the kind of thing Mubarez al-Din did so he almost certainly left Shiraz when Mobarez al-Din was, was, um, was, was, was ruling and the evidence that he went to Isfahan is in that particular poem the evidence that he went to Baghdad is the presence of Sultan Oves in his poems and Sultan, uh, Baghdad was where Sultan Oves ruled that's all. One more sure, sure. Uh, one more question. Anybody? Yes? Yes? The question
0: of inspiration or maybe a change or transformation has been brought up. Perhaps of, has alluded to, uh, to that in some of his poems.
1: Yes, he does. He does. Is
0: there evidence for that? Is this real? Have you found a trend that changes direction of tone in his poetry?
1: This is an interesting question. We don't, I mean, as, as everybody I think here will know, um, uh, we don't know when which poems were written by Hafez. Some of them we can date to probably the time that Mabrez al-Din took over. Uh, the poems which talk about closing the wine shops. And then there's a couple of poems about opening the wine shops, which happened under Shah So those poems we can fix in time. But other poems we can't. There are poems which do seem to be which seem to be fairly unequivocally very religious, and perhaps mystical. And perhaps we can apply the word Sufi to them. But then there are a number of poems, as I said, in which he talks with contempt about Sufis and Sufism. He says they're all hypocrites. Uh, And he tells himself to get rid of the Sufi cloak. He does that in a couple of poems. I'm gonna get rid of this, it's not me, I'm faking it. You know, he says underneath I'm not a Sufi. Um, my impression is that the religious, and this is almost the opposite of what you get with a lot of poets like an English poet like John Donne for example who wrote lots of um, um, very um, sexy poems and then he got closer to death and he thought ah, better have some heavenly poems (laughs) (laughs) Um, I know a lovely little rhyme about that but anyway um, uh, 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 my impression is that half his religious poems belong to his youth and that the more secular poems belong to when he was older. But that is purely a personal impression. There's no proof of it. It's just my feeling from the poems. That's I all. That, so. Oh, okay. Oh, well, we together. Great, mic.